Hey, Task Talks listeners. What can you do when you have a student who struggles with writing? You use the FAW. It's a comprehensive test of written expression that identifies the possibility of dysgraphia along with the specific subtype. The FAW screening form is a shorter version that measures the core features of writing. Both the full form and the screening form offer quick online scoring via PAR iConnect. Learn more at parinc.com backslash F-A-W or contact your PAR assessment consultant, Theo Miron at T-M-I-R-O-N at parinc.com. Hi, greetings and salutations. Welcome back to the Task Talks podcast, the podcast where we talk about all the goings-ons in the world of school psychology and other random musings. Um, I'm Chris Ponce, and joining me as always, we have Brooke Roberts and the classy one herself, Megan Medina. Hi, everyone. (laughs) As part of our ongoing series on the history of school psychology throughout the years, uh, we have two very special guests joining us today, Donna Black and Dr. Art Hernandez. today. Hello, how are you? Good. Hi, I'm doing fine. Good, good. So we've kind of known that, you know, our listeners like to get to know our guests on here. So maybe we'll start with you, Donna. Kind of tell us about how you came into the world or kind of our history with the other people. How did you stumble into school psychology? Because that seems to be Mm -hmm. the common thread with a lot of us. And how did you come to the field? Okay. And that's a good question because I began this, this profession many, many years ago. And uh, there really wasn't an established prof- profession in Texas at that time. Um, I graduated from the University of Houston Clear Lake under the training of Dr. Gail Sheridan and Dr. Emily Sutter. Oh. Back in those days, went before the LSST. And so when I went through the program there at UH Clear Lake, Gail Sheremy had just gotten the program uh, approved by NAFT. It was the first NAFT approved program in our state. And so they were very selective about the people that they let into the program, right? Mm-hmm. So I went in through the clinical route, to be honest with you, because their program was just beginning. And Emily Sutter was my advisor. And she said, you know, you don't have teaching experience, so you need to go through the clinical program. And we'll just make sure you take all of the same courses that the school psych people are taking. So we structured my program exactly like the school psych program, but I was actually in the clinical program because they were very limited. And when I graduated, I actually did a dual internship. I did one at Texas Children's Hospital, and I also did one in the schools, and I worked under Gail Sheremy. I'm I'm one of the only people that ever supervised her during internship. And believe me, it's very true what they say about her, that she keeps her hands in her stock there. Yeah. That's great. So that's how it began for me. Wow. Wow. Well, what about you, Art? How did you get into this wonderful world? Well, so I started before there was such a thing as school psychology, literally. <laughs> I was, uh, I, was uh, I had always planned to pursue an advanced degree in psychology. So when I was an undergraduate, I was uh, taking my psychology class majoring in psych and I decided I needed something to do while I was working on a master's degree, so I decided to get my teaching certificate, and I did. So I worked in the schools while I was getting a master's in clinical psych. 
And then after that, um, I kind of moved out of the school setting for a while and related to some of the work that I was doing uh, for, the, for the military, uh, I decided to get a master's degree in curriculum and instruction. So I did. And then uh, when I finally got the opportunity to, to pursue my doctoral work at uh, A&M in College Station, um, I, I decided I was going to go into the ed psych program there because I had all this education background and I had all this psych background and I thought it would be a perfect mer merger. And the other part of it was that I really liked working in the schools. I really liked working with children and I really like working with families and I like working with teachers. About the time I was working on my doctoral degree is about the time that school psychology was really getting established as a discipline separate and in and of itself into itself, right? So I am an old guy, so I'm started <laughs> off at the beginning of school psych. Um, and by the time I graduated, uh, you know, uh, TASP, had been, uh, TASP had been established. It was uh, a couple of years old, but just two when I joined. Mm -hmm. I joined in the third year ever of TASP. Wow. And uh, yeah, and uh, a lot of the folks uh, that uh, were very instrumental in getting TASP off the ground were people that were like really visionaries and big name folks and not just big name in Texas, but just really uh, uh, across the country. So we have folks in Texas at that time, and just as we do now, that are very well recognized nationally for their contributions to school psychology mm -hmm. as a profession and as a discipline. Uh, and then um, my, uh, I, started, uh, I started my school psych career uh, doing uh, an internship in a very small rural school district. Um, so I can still recall the very first day, it was a consolidated or an integrated district. They had one elementary, one middle school, and one high school. That was it. That was a small district. And I was meeting with the superintendent, and he asked me what school psychology is, <laughs> what it does, and what I wanted to do in the district, and you know what it, so I kind so of like told them the same questions people are asking today. <laughs> yeah, well, this was a long time ago, so I hope not. <laughs> well, so the interesting thing about that story, though, is that he said, "Well, he says, um, we'll definitely can see about getting you some of those experiences, but while I have you here, I'm going to want you to do some other things as well." Okay, so. I can lay claim to being one of the designers of the parking lot of this small <laughs> rural school district. Yes. I was asked, so I was like, during my internship, I was out in the parking lot at A&M measuring how wide the spaces were, how deep they were, <laughs> how much clearance there needed to be. I would go to meetings where they would talk about bus turnaround, bus turnaround radiuses, things like that. And of course, you have to remember, this was all pre-internet. So if I had to look something up, it was in the library and everything was done by hand. So God. yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I have designed a working parking lot and I did it as part of my, my, my internship. So just. Or I hope you added that to your resume. <laughs> I've never included that in my resume. I guess I yeah. might've should have, but yeah, so that was it. And to this day, it gives, well, they've, it was a long time ago, so they've redesigned and built new schools. And so my, my drive-in and my turnaround are long gone, but I still see a part of my parking lot that they still use to this day. Oh, 
here. See, where I, I where was that, Art? <laughs> that was in Snook ISD. Where is Snook? Snook is about mm, 35 minutes to uh, 35 or so minutes east of College Station. It's in, actually okay. in the middle of absolutely, well, I don't know, I haven't been there in ages, but at the time it was in the middle of absolutely nothing. And um, Snook's claim to fame was that periodically people from College Station would drive to Snook, make the long haul, because <laughs> there was this place that made the absolute best kolaches. And so people would go and buy the kolaches and then bring them back to College Station and, you know, go up to the office and people would, you know, be handing out kolaches and breakfast kolaches and cheese kolaches, you name it. <laughs> so, yeah, that was Snook's claim to fame at the time. That is great. <laughs> and then what did, you, that. what did you teach? Yeah, so when I started, I started uh, here teaching uh, uh, language arts. And as a matter of fact, while I was there, uh, I ended up being the, the chairman of the language arts department. And I was teaching at the middle school level. And uh, I taught for a very brief stint. I taught at the high school level, and I actually taught... Um, the, I actually taught high school level psychology. So, and wow. then, and then at the end of my teaching career, I went to a different district, went back to uh, middle school, and I was teaching uh, ESL classes, English as a second language classes. Which, mm. by the way, I had absolutely no training to prepare me for. <laughs> so, my sole qualification for teaching the ESL classes were that my last name was Hernandez. <laughs> now, if you really want to know a neat story related to that, I had been there for two, this. I was in my second year, and that was really at the end of the Vietnam era and the collapse. And so we had this huge influx of Vietnamese refugees. So I was teaching ESL, but the students were not English Spanish. They were English Vietnamese students. So I was looking up Vietnamese. I had Vietnamese dictionary. I, yeah, and remember, again, this was still all pre-internet. Pre so, huh? yeah. yeah, so basically I was on my own. And there was really very right. few people I could say, uh, how do you say this or that in Vietnamese? So, yeah, so even though they the hired me to teach TSL. <laughs> the things you learn on a podcast. So, yeah, there it is. That's great. That's great. Well, I love those stories. Now, the, the interesting thing is neither of you guys are, you guys have advanced your roles into more, you know, of a higher, different types of like, you're not necessarily in the school so much anymore. So can you guys kind of talk about what you guys are doing now? And I guess we'll start with Donna. Sure. That was so interesting, Art. Thanks for sharing that. My past <laughs> was not quite that illustrious. It was very simple. <laughs> no, parking lots, right? <laughs> no parking right, lots, right? No parking you didn't, lots. You didn't wear that hat as a school psychologist, right? <laughs> no, no, but I will tell you that I, the, my first supervisor in the schools was Dr. Carol Booth, if you know her. She, mm -hmm. We re recently lost her, but one of the things she told me in my first year, I said to her, we will never see mental health services in the schools. Now she reminded me of that 20 something years later when I was really promoting and advocating for social emotional learning. So it's interesting, you know, what you say, be careful it can come back at you. Um, anyhow, what am I doing now? That was the question, right? Well, yeah. currently <laughs> I work for, as an assessment consultant for WPS, which is Western Psychological Services. I work full time for them. 
primarily in the role of an assessment consultant, but I'm, I'm navigating the SEL landscape for them and helping them. Um, I also am president of the SEL for Texas, which is a nonprofit state coalition that promotes and advocates for the advancement of SEL in Texas schools. I also teach for the Academy for SEL in Schools, which is a joint project between Rutgers University and the University of St. Elizabeth. It offers an online certificate program. It's post-baccalaureate level for uh, school administrators and for school leaders who want to advance SEL in schools. And lastly, I just authored a brand new book, an essentials book that's soon to be published. And it's titled The Essentials of Social Emotional Learning, The Complete Guide for Schools and Practitioners. So I've been real busy. <laughs> That's awesome. We're not above a shameless plug on this thing. So you talk away <laughs> about it. <laughs> so how did you come to write the essentials books or the books? Well, a Wiley actually approached me while I was at MASP and asked if I would be interested in writing a book on SEL because they had heard about some of the work we had done here in Texas. And I said, sure. And they asked me to submit a proposal and I did. And Alan Kaufman actually reviewed the proposal was excited about it and said, yes, they would publish it. So I agreed to do it. I have to tell you, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. Not sure I'll do it again, but <laughs> it's done now. And I'm, and I'm relieved that it's it's now in the editing process and soon will be published. So. Man. Man, do we have an ETA on when it might be published? Projected date is October, November. Okay, so this Somewhere year. Somewhere around that, so this year. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's going to fly off the shelves, to be honest, because I know that is uh, social emotional learning is something uh, that everyone is talking about in our field, um, I feel like, and we all want more information on it. And so it's going to be a great resource, I'm sure. Well, it's more of a practical guide. So as the title says, it, it's going to offer schools the, the, the piece by piece, the step by step, what they need to do. Well, congratulations, Donna. I hope we all receive autographed copies. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and Art, how about you? What, do, what have you been up to lately? Well, I'm a college professor. I, I teach in a variety of programs. Uh, my focus is uh, research and data analysis. I, I teach the courses that everyone loves to take. Um, I do uh, also teach an instrumentation course. We, we touch a little bit on psychometrics, things like that. Um, in addition to that, I'm serving as a, I'm serving on the Joint Commission on Standards for Educational Evaluation. I'm the representative for the American Evaluation Association on that uh, standards group. We're in the process of um, writing a, a book uh, related to the utilization of those standards. So I'm going to be one of the authors on that. Um, that's something we're just getting started. So that's probably the publication of that's probably a couple of years out. Um, so, uh, but I'm really looking forward to that. And um, I'm also doing um, some consulting. Uh, I consult uh, primarily in three areas. Um, I've doing, been doing a lot of consulting around the area of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and I have um, school district clients as well as um, 
uh, private clients, private corporation clients. So I have a, uh, one of my biggest non-school clients is um, a manufacturer, importer, and purveyor of alcoholic beverages based in uh, Kentucky. And the story I can tell you there is the first time I was doing some consulting for them. They took me over, brought me down, or brought me up to Louisville. And my first day, they decided I need an orientation to the whiskey, to the bourbon business. Oh, man. So I spent the whole first day on the bourbon trail, going from distillery to distillery, tasting whiskey all day long. And at the end of the day, I got to the hotel. I'm not really sure I could walk or see straight. I had <laughs> I had a bag of uh, you know here take the bottle uh, kind of a thing and uh, that that I had from my day and I was I was kind of laying there and my head was spinning a little bit and I was thinking my God I can't believe they're actually paying me to do this so um, I liked that gig because among other things uh, every time I would go to Louisville for a work. I would always take an extra suitcase to bring back all of the bottles that I would get. So, yeah, so I have quite a bourbon collection now uh, as a result of that consulting. Um, and then I do, you know, like I said, I do some other consulting. I'm on a couple of advisory boards related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, the second area of consulting that I do, I do uh, some work for uh, private practitioners in terms of assessment. Um, I help with uh, differential diagnosis, and also uh, people will contact me and ask me to help them to uh, give some information with regard to uh, the possibility of malingering. So um, I do some. Uh, I like to do. Uh, I like to stick, uh, stay involved with the assessment in terms of differential diagnosis and and in terms of uh, um, identifying that. So down the clinical side, I'm doing that, and then. Uh, and the third kind of con third area of consultation that I do is I'm working now a lot with folks that are developing grant proposals, uh, helping them structure those proposals and frame that, uh, build the methodology for both the research component and the evaluation component primarily is what I do uh, on those uh, on those uh, proposals. So, yeah, and that's a lot of fun. The last one I was working on was with a group of folks. Uh, that were based at um, University of Florida, and they were looking at littoral systems and the economic impact of, of freshwater, saltwater boundary uh, ecologies. And I don't really didn't know a whole lot about any of that, but but I helped them with design the with the research design and also with building the evaluation plan for that grant proposal. So, you might have heard about your parking lot thing. <laughs> you know, once you build the parking lot, you can pretty much do anything, dude. I'm telling you, that's my claim to fame. You know, Chris, I'm going to be really upset at the next um, task meeting, conference, whatever, if people start walking up to me and know me as the parking lot guy. <laughs> that's what people are going to know me. That's how people are going to know me from now on. I'm really not going to be happy with you. I want you to know that. No, I, I, I think I think you're wrong. I, I think people will be giving you their job applications to see if they can be your assistant on the uh, Kentucky Bourbon Trail. Yeah. <laughs> That's a that was a really cool gig, and what that made it even sense. better is that they've hired me back again to come back. Uh, uh. The only downside is that thanks to COVID, there's been no trips to Kentucky this year. Ah, damn. <laughs> well, I bet I bet Kia gets that part edited out anyway. So there we go. <laughs> 
Sorry about you. Right. <laughs> so what some of our listeners may not know, we're in the middle and, and we're in the middle of uh, part two of, of this series, kind of the history of school psych in Texas. But uh, uh, some of our listeners may not really know that both of you, uh, you know, and, and really why you're here is you both been TSBEP board members. Um, and so could y'all talk a little bit about that? Who do you want to start? I, I can tell you that Art was just going off the board when I was so maybe Art should talk first about his experience. <laughs> that, sounds like, that sounds like a good idea. I was nominated to be on the board, but I'm not real sure who nominated me. Um, I was first contacted about it by the appointments, by the governor's appointment secretary, and it kind of freaked me out. I didn't think it was actually for real. I thought maybe someone was playing a practical joke on me. Uh, and I afterwards, I found out that some of the folks at the time who were actually TASPA board members had thought I might be a good person to be on the board and had made some suggestions. So, but yeah, I found out afterwards after I got first contacted. So who was um, the governor at that time? Who was our prior governor, the one that went on to become Secretary of Energy? Perry? Perry. Yeah, that's Perry. It was Perry, okay. I believe. Yeah, Perry okay. was governor for ages and ages. You guys know that, right? Yeah. Anyway, um, I was appointed. Well, in I didn't 2000... know if this was as far back as Ann Richards or, uh, you know, how far back we were talking. Yeah, dude, I'm old, but I'm not that old, dude. <laughs> Brooks is just happy he's not the oldest person on the in this podcast anymore. So <laughs> he's taking his shots while he can. I, I'm totally okay with that because, you know, uh, yeah, well, I would say something, but then then we'd have to edit it out. So I'll keep it. I'll, I'll keep it. I won't say it. I was originally appointed to the board in 2002. I served from 2002 to 2007. I served a, you know, a little bit longer than my term because uh, you serve at the time. I'm not sure now, but at the time you served your term and then you continued to serve until the governor replaced you. And so okay. I guess what about you, Donna? <laughs> well, I, I actually was appointed to the board in 2007, the year that Art went off the board. <laughs> So I actually attended one meeting with him and that was his last meeting and my first meeting. I remember back then, this was in 07 and I was on the task board at that time. And of course, when you get appointed to the TSVEP, you have to resign any kind of political position you have or any kind of position you have with, or with professional organizations. So I had to resign my position with task and I served until Let's see, my term started in 07. I was reappointed in 2012 by Governor Perry, and I served until just recently, 2018. I was just shy of 12 years of being on the board, and I've been told that that's the longest term that anyone has ever served as a board member. Uh, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, to be honest with you. <laughs> so, what are your guys' roles on as board members? Well, you know, the board is, it consists of nine members. Four of those are LPs, two are LPAs, and three are public members. You have to hold one of those credentials to be able to serve on the board. And there are specific rules regarding, as an LP, what you must represent. I think that the LPs, there has to be some person from research and some, some people from clinical practice. So it's pretty specific. I actually hold the LPA. So when I was appointed, I served in the LPA slot. Uh, they didn't have a designated slot for LSSP, and they still don't. They just have one of those, as you know, that yeah. has to hold the LSSP. 
in terms of what our roles were though, we function, you know, the, the board, the mission of the board is to protect the public, right? We have, we fulfill that mission by doing certain things, you know, developing rules that regulate the practice of psychology and by establishing uh, competent competency requirements and by establishing standards of practice. Okay. Would you kind of describe it the same way, Art? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, we definitely, I'm sure Donna did as well. We were involved also on the board uh, in the role of adjudicating uh, against complaints against licensees. Um, <laughs> so we got to hear lots of things ranging from um, the absurd to the absurd. It was very clear, for example, that uh, forensic psychology was a risky business because, uh, you know, a lot of times they would get involved in divorce cases and whoever lost would always file a complaint against the psychologist. Um, so we dealt with some really kind of amazing things. We moved during the time while I was on the board, we moved away and we started to get a little bit more um, or a little less, I guess, directly involved in adjudicating things unless there were things that were recommended by our legal folks as needing, you know, board attention. Um, a lot of times those things were handled by our legal folks without actually involving us. Um, let's see. And then during my term as chair, besides, you know, running the meetings and so forth, um, you know, I was the, uh, again, during the time I was there, uh, it may have changed afterwards, but um I was the uh, ad hoc chair of all of the different committees of the of the board. So I was chair of the complaint committee. I was chair of the rules committee. And so um, the, the executive director would basically, I guess she had my number on speed dial. And every time something would come up, she'd call it. During the time that I was on the board, we dealt with a variety of different things. But probably one of the things that was the biggest was um, we went through sunset while I was on the board and actually was chair of the board during that time, despite not getting any support from uh, any of the professional associations uh, to maintain the board as a separate entity, uh, myself and a couple of the other board members took it on ourselves to uh, basically invest in that. And so uh, despite the recommendations of Sunset as a result of some of the things, some of the work that we did, the TSBEP was sustained as a separate entity, it was not consolidated, we did not have to give up uh, jurisdiction, we did not uh, basically, um, we did not lose any staff, and as a matter of fact, uh, as we were actually successful in getting the executive director raised, so um, I was really, really happy and proud of that, I think that was something that was really important. We really fought against, uh, you know, turning school psych and psych in general in, into a business or commodity. I still have a lot of issues with the fact that in Texas, you know, property rights trump, you know, the protection of the public in terms of provision of services, psychological services. So, yeah, and I still have a lot of problems with the fact that after all this time, despite the advocacy, we still don't have it in the, the um, Enabling Act or in um, uh, any uh, of the regulations, uh, any requirement of a school psychology representation. And I think that's something that is, should be a priority, something we should be focusing on. Um, I think it's important to be able to call ourselves school psychologists. And I certainly don't, I, I certain, you know, I know that some people may not necessarily agree with that position, but I definitely think that's the case. 
but having said that, I would say that the penultimate priority should be to have it mandated that uh, both at the LP level and at the LSSP level, master's level LSSP, that we have uh, school psychology representation on the board. I, I think that definitely goes into to where we are, um, you know, especially in the in the scope of things. And I'll throw it to to Donna in just a second. But that the the requirement that an LSSP that one of the licensees on the board hold an LSSP is a fairly new requirement, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the in the past, I believe, six years. Yeah. Um, so. So, so I'm, I'm glad to hear that we're still thinking about this and, and what we need to do going forward. Donna? Yeah, yeah. and when we talk about the history, and I know that's something you're gonna, we're going to dive into in just a minute, but when you think about the history of where, we, where we've been and where we are now, we're in great jeopardy of losing everything we fought for if we do not get a position on that board. And I'm, I mean an independent position on that board, someone who is practicing as an LSSP, and that's the only requirement. They don't have to hold an additional license to be on that board. And, and I'll stop there because I don't want to get ahead of us. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit more about, I know you, you talked about how we're in jeopardy of losing kind of everything that was fought for. Can you talk a little bit more about that journey and just how did you see yeah. the practice of school psychology change in Texas during your time as a board member? Sure. Sure, and I'll, I'll preface this with the fact that, you know, we wrote an article about this that was published in the task journal, the research and practice in the schools, it was published in October of 16. I co-authored it with Dr. Dan Miller and Dr. Gail Sherby, and we went through the history of the LSSP, talked about everything that had happened in our profession prior to the LSSP being created and everything that happened following that. I'll give you a little bit of the Cliff Notes version of that article here so you can get kind of get a, a feeling for where we've been. Before the LSSP was ever created, the, the practicing of school psychology in schools really required individuals to get a certification from TEA. And there were four different levels of certification. Even with the certification, you were still required to be licensed by TSVP. So you had to hold an LP or you had to hold an LPA. If you held the LPA, you had to be supervised in schools. If you didn't, if you had the LP, you did not. Then in 1989, I think it was, uh, it's when NASP created the NCSP. And when that happened, individuals who had obtained the NCSP were able to bypass licensure with TSVP and they were able to get directly certified by TEA. What happened then is they did not address the issue of supervision for those individuals. And so that opened up another can of worms. Well, so basically if you were practicing in Texas in those years, you were either, you either had to be licensed and certified by TEA and supervised if you were an LPA, or you were dually certified by NASP and by TEA. Well, this triggered a ruling from OSEP in 1994. OSEP issued a ruling saying that states could not have dual levels of licensure or dual levels of credentialing for school psychologists if the only difference between their levels was this terminal degree. So another big can of worms was open there, but we never were able to resolve those issues because in 1994, 
the legislature began the process of, of uh, overhauling the Texas Education Code. So Senate Bill 1 was passed that year. And what they did was they said that TEA needed to get out of the certification business for certain groups of people. And that included folks like audiologists, SLPs, OTs, PTs, nurses, practitioners, school psychologists, associate school psychologists, and social workers and LPCs. So all of those folks were to be licensed under their regulatory boards and TEA was to stop certifying. After that, there was no appropriate credential for school psychologists. What ended up happening was a complete polarization in our field. Uh, if you were practicing at that time, I remember it so vividly because people were angry with one another. There was a great deal of dissension, a great deal of disagreement. A lot of name calling was going on and a lot of use of inappropriate language on the floor of the legislature. There was, <laughs> there was just a, a, a great deal of uh, hostility, I should say. Um, what it boiled down to, though, is Senate Bill 1 was passed, and they directed the TSBEP to create this, this credential called the LSSP. And so the training standards were adopted for the credential, and the LSSP became official on April the 10th, 1996. At that time, that was the credential that was required for the practice of school psychology in Texas. Interesting. So that's that's the Cliff, <laughs> Cliff Notes version of that. Yes. And then and I was born the next month. So. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I was just looking. It's the it was uh, the anniversary two days ago of that happening. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's true. Yeah. So I just wow. want to say there were there were a lot of folks who were involved with the birth of the LSSP, but. Mm -hmm. I have to say that we need to remember that uh, Gail had a principal role in all of that. Gail was a, actually very significantly invested and very significantly influential in birthing the LSSP. So among uh, her other claim to fame, including um, being responsible for Donna Black, uh, she's also responsible <laughs> for the LSSP. You know, it's interesting that she was my professor, my mentor, and now I call her my best friend. Interesting how things evolve, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Donna, you know, I also think about, um, you know, just from my knowledge of your time on the board, there were really some significant changes, I think, in rule development and, and oversight there um, that I'd like for you to talk to. I mean, you could talk probably for a long time about just kind of the overhaul of the supervision rules while you're on the board. But yeah. I think also, really pertinent to the practice of school psychology and and, and uh, to what we do, you really helped the board to see, and I think the profession to see maybe some differences with consent, um, but then also yeah. differences between what might be an educational service versus a psychological service. Um, so can you talk about that process, those that journey? Well, yeah, I want to conceptualize this. I think that it's important to understand that prior to my appointment, my time on the board, there had been a lot of changes because remember the creation of the LSST occurred in 1995, 96. I didn't come on the board until 2007. So within that time frame, there were a lot of changes to the rules. 
But most of those changes really centered around or related to um, credentialing standards, like what people needed to have in terms of training and what kind of experience they had to have. So when I came on the board, I was really struggling and I saw clearly the need to educate that board about practice-related issues because there were some, some real challenges and struggles in the schools with regard to how the rules applied to our practice. And it was my job to help this board understand, this is what I, see, I perceived as my, my job, was to help this board understand that we really were a unique set of individuals, that our line of practice was not like private practice, was not like clinical practice, that what, what we say, what was said in the rules that the board recognized the unique uniqueness of this, this license. I worked very hard to help this board understand that what we did in schools was pretty much regulated by state and federal education laws. And those superseded any board rules that might be in place. I think there was a misperception amongst, even amongst licensees that they had to follow every one of those board's rules. And that simply was not the case. We have a rule, have had a rule for some time that said that in the absence of federal or state education laws, that board rules would apply. But we have plenty of state and federal education laws that govern our practice, and therefore they supersede any board rules. And some of those rules have to do with informed consent, as you said, Brooke. And one of the things we were seeing happening in schools is that we were getting separate consents to conduct a psychological evaluation, when in fact that wasn't necessary because we get consents in schools to, to conduct an FIE and that's it. And so we, we needed to stop the practice of getting these separate consents, but that required that the board be better informed about what our practice looked like. So after some time, we were able to make changes in the rules that, that uh, specified or clarified that there was no need to obtain a separate consent, uh, informed consent for um, conducting any type of evaluation in the schools. Um, it was considered an FIE. I think there are several other rules that, that, ha that I think passed during the 12 years that I was on the board and some of those rules uh, the supervision rule obviously was one of the big rules, but I think one of the most important rules that we had changed was the clarification that when LSFTs have a complaint filed against them with the board, oftentimes those complaints come out from, say, parents who are disgruntled with the school and the school's processes, and so they'll file complaints against anyone, including an LSFT. And so the rule that I think is really important was we changed uh, the requirements that said that any individuals filing a complaint against an LSSP for IDEA-related violations had to first exhaust all of their due process rights within the school district before that complaint would be received by TSBEP. And that eliminated a lot of the frivolous complaints that were coming in. I also um, remember a huge rule change that occurred and that was uh, we were told we could no longer use the NCSP. 
in our in our uh, signing of documents. And so I fought to get an attorney general's opinion on that. And I and that was a hard battle, I have to tell you. It was one of the hardest battles the entire time I was on the on the board. That was the hardest battle that we we went through. But we prevailed. And the attorney general agreed with everything we said. They could not deny the use of the NCSP because it was one of those standards of credentialing. And so we we won that battle and we can use the NCSP now. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> Yay to that. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of other rules that passed. Oh, forensic practice. That was another rule. We had the rule clarified as, as Dr. Hernandez said, the forensics is one of the, the highest areas of complaints against licensees. And uh, we had to make sure that we didn't have complaints coming in against LSSPs who were alleging that our testimony in a due process hearing constituted forensic practice. So we clarified in the rules that it did not constitute forensic practice. Therefore, we don't follow the forensic rules. That was another big change, I think. Others had to do with supervision requirements as you, for individuals who were transferring into our state and wanting to be licensed, if they'd been practicing in another state and it had the adequate amount of supervision, they, our rules didn't allow them to transfer that supervision with them. And they were having to repeat supervision when they came into our state. Man, that's rough. So we changed that rule. <laughs> we also changed the rule that allowed them to wait, to have a waiver for uh, the three-year requirement for supervision. Remember when we had to have three years of supervision before we could supervise others? That no longer exists, but there was a rule <laughs> at that at one time. And we changed that to allow people to waiver, request a waiver for that requirement so they could immediately begin supervising if they had had the appropriate supervision before. It's fascinating just how you know, you're told in grad school that everything that you learn is going to, you know, half of what you learn is going to be outdated in, in 10 years. But I think just even in the regulation and the monitoring and, and the, this, this process of oversight, uh, in a sense, how quickly things, it doesn't feel like it's that quick when you're in the middle of it. But looking back now, man, the, the amount of work that has gone on um, with this board going from the creation of the license to now where people are really understanding what our practice is, it has been uh, uh, tremendous. You know, I agree. I think there are a couple of important takeaways. One is that um, we have to really continue to be invested and engaged because uh, policy is influenced by a lot of things but, and unfortunately, politics is one of those influences. Um, so it's hard to argue against things that are good in principle or things that are sound professional practice or clinical practice or schools, school practice. But it's a lot harder to think about and to argue against things that are really based on political perspectives and traditional definitions and so forth. Um, the other issue that I have is that the board is constantly having to negotiate uh, between being um, uh, responsible, as Donna said, for the protection of the public good, and also being a principal arbitrator of guild issues, where you know 
psychologists are arguing against school psychologists, you know, that, you know, the age old and ancient battle about whether you need a doctoral degree to be called a psychologist and so on and so on and so on. So a lot of that back and forth is really about territory. It's really about scope of practice. You know, one of the things that I've seen since I've been uh, a psychologist, you know, uh, is both at the, you know, at the old, in the old days, we were called, you know, associate psychologists or assistant psychologists, um, all the way to being a licensed psychologist and beyond, is the gradual erosion of our scope of practice. So now you look at all of the specialized credentials that you need to do different kinds of things, whether we're talking about um, autism or we're talking about, you know, uh, behavior, my God, behavior management. I mean, these were things that are kind of the bedrock of our training. And now all of a sudden we didn't have the training necessary. And so you can see how really and truly we have to be vigilant about making sure that we're uh, not only staking our claim, but maintaining that. And that's not a guild issue. That's really a practice issue for us to have credibility and authority in the schools that we need to have in order to be effective. We need to be sure that we're protecting the scope of practice and our areas of expertise from encroachment. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that's really important and something that TASP has been investing in and needs to continue to invest in so that we can move forward in a, in a, in having that place and having that scope of practice. Uh, the other thing I think that's gonna be really need to be considered uh, in terms of thinking about what the board does is although the board doesn't have any direct uh, relationship to or any direct involvement with you know the legislature, we don't actually lobby or the board doesn't actually lobby uh, the legislature. The board is from time to time called to serve as an informant or to provide an opinion or to inform individual legislators around certain things. Uh, and we need to be sure that the board is well educated about the, about the school psych, about the LSSB perspective on a lot of these issues, because mm-hmm. I can tell you that they're being well-schooled on the, by, by other points of view with regard to some of these issues. And so being aware that even if it isn't a, necessarily a board issue, we need to be sure that the, we, we do what is necessary to keep the board informed and the board understanding about where our particular perspective or point of view might be. I, I wanted to add to something to that. I think that, that even amongst board members, as they come onto the board, there is a misperception about the licenses that are the licenses that the board issues. The common perception is that there's a hierarchy to these licenses. Now, rightly so for the LPA and the LPA, I mean the LP and the LPA. But when you talk, think about the LSSP, there's no hierarchy to that license. It's, it is the required credential. You know, that was a word we fought for in the legislature. Yeah. <laughs> the required credential for practicing in the schools. So that means that there's no higher credential in the schools and there's no lower credential. But board members perceive the LP as being the highest license. And that's a misperception. And I think it's important that we continue to educate these members, especially the public members, because their perception matters as well. And those public members aren't, they're not as tainted, I guess is the word, as the, the licensed members are, because they don't, they don't practice and they don't understand those differences. So helping to educate those public members is critical 
they, they make a huge difference on that board. It's also important for us to maintain a very close relationship with um, the executive director of that board. And uh, any executive director of the, the Behavioral Health Council now because that, that executive director guides that board and provides uh, a lot of um, information for them to help them better do their job. And we've been very fortunate to have Mr. Spinks as that executive director of our board and now of the BHEC. And he's been very open-minded about these differences and how we need to keep these differences in mind as we develop rules and pass rules for this practice. I just wanna reinforce that idea because uh, I'm familiar with that other areas of practice, their EDs have been uh, more politically oriented and less open to uh, providing input on those professions over which they're involved or the, the agencies with which they're involved. And so we are, we have been very, very fortunate to have uh, Daryl serve as the ED. I think that's good. I also want to make sure we don't pass by something that I think is really important. Um, uh, I have to say that I really appreciate Donna's work on the board, and this is speaking as someone who has that experience. You know, Donna was very invested. She was also very engaged. I don't remember a single uh, TASP meeting after Donna was appointed to the board uh, from early on all the way through where she wasn't talking to people about getting their perspective about things. I think Donna was very intent to go back on the board and very cognizant of her role as representing school psychology as a discipline and as a profession. So I just wanna say uh, in this podcast, kudos to Donna. And if you walk up to, to, to me, you can call me the, the parking lot king and you can call <laughs> Donna Black the psych rule queen because she really was influential. I don't know, Dr. Hernandez. What I would say is that you laid that foundation for my work. So, oh, pun I intended. Think you, yeah, <laughs> no pun intended. He painted the stripes, did he? <laughs> he did. Stripes and all, right? <laughs> but I appreciate everything you said. It means a lot. Thank you. Well, I think we all second everything that you guys just said about each other and your great compliment war you just had with each other. Um, and we're getting kind of close to finishing this up. Um, but I think one more question I want to ask both of you guys is we've talked a lot about the history of school psychology in the state of Texas, but where do you guys kind of want to see us go in the future? Or maybe just kind of what do you see for the future of school psychology? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think we have a real golden opportunity right now to really change things for our young people. We have to, however, be very cognizant of the importance of social and emotional learning. We, we've seen in the past two decades failed policies that have focused on high stakes testing and accountability uh, in an attempt to reform education and make uh, outcomes better for kids. But none of those policies, in my opinion, have made much difference. What we now have to do is, is be out there and be willing to understand how social and emotional learning can be the great equalizer in our education system. Uh, we have systems issues that need to be dealt with and these systems issues are, are literally responsible for so, much of the, so many of the barriers that are creating the educational inequities in our school systems. Uh, 
And if we don't address those systems issues, and if we don't advocate for educating the whole child, not just their academic development, but their social and emotional development as well, then we are not preparing these kids for success in life. And we have this opportunity now, we have that unique set of skills that is needed to move us out of the realm of what I call the relegation to special education. We have to move into the general education environment with our skill set. We are the unique providers of those kinds of skills that schools are so needing to, to be able to address the mental health needs. We have trauma at epic proportions right now. And we have to get into that general education world and understand their pain points and be able to address those pain points. And who else to do that but school psychologists? Yeah, I agree. I would say a couple of things. One is um, we need to do a better job of informing and educating the public about who we are and what we do. It's incredibly frustrating to me. I was involved in some efforts related to um, you know, crisis response planning and so on. And one of the challenges that we had was when we talk about that, um, the immediate response to any kind of mental health needs and response to crisis on the part of the majority of our legislators were thinking about the school counselor. And there was nobody was, I mean, when you talked about the LSSP, there were folks that like didn't even, didn't know what that was, didn't know what the training was, didn't know what we could provide. Uh, so m making sure that we educate the world around us about uh, who we are, what we do, and what we can do is critically important. I think we also want to be emphasizing our expertise in areas that we don't necessarily get called on or tapped to, to provide. So we have extraordinary training and expertise in the area of assessment, and schools are very assessment-oriented. Everything's about tests. And nobody ever thinks to talk about the assessment specialists in the district, which is the LSSP. Um, we also have uh, now as part of the, you know, part of the NASP requirements for training, we have some focus and some emphasis on evaluation as part of the training. How much evaluation happens in the schools that is just done very, very poorly that doesn't have uh, any kind of systematic or any kind of um, strong uh, or empirical or conceptual basis. So that that's something that we want to go ahead and start looking at. And then, and then last but not least, I think one of the things that's crucially important, and it goes hand in hand with SEL in the schools, and that is recognizing that a lot of our kids are kids of trauma. They're dealing with a lot of substantial and significant trauma. So when we talk about normal, quote unquote normal, we need to recognize that normal really doesn't, for a lot of our kids, describe what their experience is. In fact, maybe in some respects, our idea of normal is more idealistic than realistic. So we need to make sure that school folks understand that they're not dealing with, that they're dealing with a lot of kids who are subject to and dealing with the consequences of significant trauma. And, and I think a lot of times uh, that goes unrecognized and that goes uh, basically unresponded to. I think that was very well said by both of you guys. And so a fun little thing 
before we finish this up completely, we like to do it at the end of every episode, is we like to do a round of lightning questions about random things that we're going to ask you guys. So Megan's going to do it. Um, so you're not getting questions for Brooke and I. So, um, so she's going to shoot them at and she's going to tell you, she's going to say who's going to answer that question. All right, Megan, go for it. Okay, Art, I would love to hear your favorite cognitive assessment that you give. <laughs> uh, I don't give it anymore, but when I was training uh, to be a psychologist, when I was a doctoral level training, uh, I learned how to use the WISCAR, which was just coming out. It literally had just been published. And when I was did my original training as a psychologist when I was doing clinical work, uh, I was trained on the original WACE and the original yes. Stanford Binet. You did them without numbers, no WISC 2 or WACE 2. <laughs> I, I did, before there were any numbers, yes. Yes, I, I was... <laughs> I was doing the original KABC when it was in the big purple plastic boxes. No, no <laughs> online scoring, none of that. <laughs> no iPad that went with it. No, God, no. no. Oh, awesome. Okay, Donna, what is your go-to coffee order if you drink coffee? A vanilla latte. Vanilla <laughs> latte every time. <laughs> I like all coffee. So anytime people answer this, I'm like, yes, I will drink that. <laughs> An added question, Megan, real quick for Donna. How many coffees do you drink throughout the day? Oh, yes. I don't drink a lot of coffee. I'm more of a tea person. Okay. So I okay. do drink okay. a lot of tea. <laughs> so can I ask Donna a lightning round question? So Donna, what kind of bourbon do you put in your coffee? <laughs> Wild turkey. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's great. Oh, That's great. That's great. <laughs> But Art, I have to tell you, my husband calls that undomesticated foul. <laughs> <laughs> okay, last two questions. They're combo, but they're for both of you because I'm just really curious. What are your favorite, what's your all-time favorite movie? And what's the last TV show you binged? So whoever wants to go first for your last oh, one. I'll go, I'll go with it. A League of Their Own, my favorite all-time movie. And I binge watched more recently Lucifer. The Netflix oh, series. Oh, great show. Great Donna, show. You, have, you have good taste. <laughs> okay, I'm going to have to add that one to my list. Yeah, that's mm, a good one, Brooke. Yeah, see, you let Donna go first, and so now I have to give you mine, and I don't know. <laughs> my all-time favorite movie is The Man Who Knew Too Little. That's a good choice. That's a good choice. Yeah, okay. so I don't know, Brooke, I don't know if you've ever seen that, Making a Face. Uh, I am so not a movie. I, like, I I know the least about movies and TV shows of anybody. So yeah, it came just, out like what ninety seven or something like that. Late ninety sure. came out. You know, you can't really blame a Brooke because I think it came out around the time he was born. So yeah, I think <laughs> older movies. And then let's see, the last um, there's a BBC series called The Three Musketeers, and I just watched like the whole first uh the whole first uh season uh last night well you know i've heard about that i've seen the previews for it and things like that you enjoyed it yeah it was actually pretty good i'm you know i I'm, was really kind of amazed that i liked it as much as i did and i think probably the thing i liked the best about it is that each episode kind of stands on its own so if you didn't see the episode before it's okay because the the episode just starts and has a middle and ends all by itself. 
That's great. That's great. And Donna, I do want to second the Lucifer binge because that is a phenomenal show. And, oh my and I and I think it came out of left field with you saying it because I didn't even think like anybody would say they binge watched Lucifer recently. You know, Donna, this is being recorded and everybody in the world is going to hear this. <laughs> you know that, right? All right. But you know what? That is a great series. And I can't wait until the final <laughs> season. It's coming out yeah, this summer, out I think. Yeah, it's yeah. a great procedural with, you know, Satan himself <laughs> leading yeah. up a detective. <laughs> well, and you, you know what it says? That there is good in everyone, even exactly. the devil. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. He just needed to be humanized first. That's right. <laughs> awesome. Well, before I finish it up, does anybody else have any comments or any type of things they want to kind of talk about? Megan, Brooke, Art, or Donna, anybody? I just want to say um, thank you for coming on. And it has been very inspiring um, just as a younger LSSP to hear all of your <laughs> advocacy efforts and what you've done. Um, I feel like inspired to go do more. So thank you for that. <laughs> I'm really thankful that we could make this happen. Uh, and uh, I think we could probably do an entire episode with just Donna doing SEL and with just Art talking yeah. about what we need to be telling our, our board members and our legislators. Um, so uh, definitely um, take these ideas and run with them. And I, I just, just want, Go I ahead, want to ask, I have one question for Art though. When, when I first came on the task board, he went under an, an, another name. He was known as Wally, I think it was. Can you tell what? us that story, Art? <laughs> yeah, it's a very, very, very long, long time ago. And um, yeah, so in um, my very first, uh, very first year, I was on the TASPA board, very first time I'd ever been on the board. Um, I was an area rep and I was going to a meeting and I'm getting to the hotel kind of late and I'm checking in and I go to the desk and I tell them who I am. And they said, no, they don't have a reservation for me. I said, so we're talking, I'm going back and forth with the desk. I said, well, I'm with the task board. Do you have like any reservations for the task board? I'm not on that list. And he says, well, he says, I do have somebody, but it's not an Art Hernandez. He says, it's a, uh, it's a Art Gonzalez. I said, oh, that's me. Well, subsequent to that whole episode, uh, um, it it started to become common knowledge that I checked in as Art Gonzalez, and uh, somebody decided, not mentioning any names, but somebody decided that um, Art Gonzalez wasn't good enough, so they started saying that I checked under Wally Gonzalez. And so for a decade afterwards, I was referred to as Wally, Mm -hmm. So, yes, I'm not mentioning any names of who was involved with all of that, uh, you know, to protect it. Well, they're not really innocent. But what I was going to say is I just want to say thank you. Thank you all very much for doing this. I think it's yeah. a great contribution. Hopefully some of our folks are actually going to be listening and following <laughs> this and learning from this. And last but not least, I want to make sure everybody remembers that when Donna's book comes out, she said you could get a free autographed copy from her. <laughs> Just reach out to her and she will give you the copy. So it's SEL and my God, is that important right now? And let's just all say thank you to Donna for the book. 
Thank, Thank you, Donna. Thank you, Donna. And uh, we'll go ahead and give everybody our, our uh, Donna's email and uh, phone number. Uh, and I'm sure Kia is going to edit every bit of this out. <laughs> He, he would never, he would never. <laughs> so awesome. So let me go ahead and just finish it up. So I want to thank every listener again for joining us on the Task Talks podcast. Uh, remember to follow our official Task Facebook and Instagram accounts at TXASP, where you can get all the up-to-date info on what is happening in our field and what the board is currently up to. And until next time, make good choices. Like Thank you. That, that, was, that was a nice little sniper shot, Donna, at the very end to force Art to have to tell that story. <laughs> well, well, Art, I, got, a, Art got even by Art got even by just telling everyone Donna was giving away books. I, I hope you yeah, caught that go. too. <laughs> That's great. <laughs>